If you're enjoying The Sleepy Bookshelf, then be sure to check out the other sleepy shows in our network. Get Sleepy has original stories and meditations. I even narrate some of them. Or if you prefer relaxing soundscapes and music, then be sure to check out Deep Sleep Sounds. It's even great for babies too. You can find all of our shows wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks and sweet dreams. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It's wonderful to have you here with me. Tonight, we are continuing with Anne F. Avonlea. But first, let's take a moment to prepare ourselves for rest. Raise your eyebrows as high as you can for five seconds. Now relax and immediately feel that release of tension. Now, smile as wide as you can and hold that for five seconds. Now relax. Squeeze your eyes tight shut and hold it for five seconds. Now relax. Tilt your head back so you're comfortably looking at the ceiling. Hold that also for five seconds. And relax, allowing your neck to sink back into your pillow. Next, I want you to hug your arms around yourself and pull your legs in as tight as you comfortably can holding for another five seconds. Excellent. Now allow yourself a lovely big yawn as you relax into a comfortable position. Last time, a new school year had begun for Anne, along with new pupils in her class, including Dora and Davy. One Friday in October, Diana and Anne were invited to the Kimballs for tea. Anne proposed they walk, knowing a shortcut to that part of town. They took a wrong turn and started down a driveway with the hope of asking the owner for directions. Both were taken aback by the mystical beauty of the lane and the old, a perfectly sweet little cottage at the end of it. Diana knew it to be the home of Miss Lavender Lewis, a local spinster who was known to be quite peculiar. With intrigue, they asked the young housemaid, who was no more than 14, to see Miss Lavender. She was indeed a very unusual woman, quite old, 
but somehow youthful and whimsical in looks and manner. She had a tea all laid out, ready for some pretend guests which she liked to imagine for herself. After they left, they promised to come back to see the lonely older lady soon. When Anne got home, Marilla told her all about how Miss Lavender had once been engaged to little Paul Irving's father. Tonight, we pick up with Anne returning to Echo Lodge to see Miss Lavender. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Avonlea. Chapter 23 Miss Lavender's Romance I think I'll take a walk to Echo Lodge this evening, said Anne one Friday afternoon in December. Looks like snow, said Marilla dubiously. I'll be there before the snow comes, and I mean to stay all night. Diana can't go because she has company and I'm sure Miss Lavender will be looking for me tonight. It's a whole fortnight since I was there. Anne had paid many a visit to Echo Lodge since that October day. Sometimes she and Diana drove around by the road. Sometimes they walked through the woods. When Diana could not go, Anne went alone. Between her and Miss Lavender had sprung up one of those fervent, helpful friendships, possible only between a woman who has kept the freshness of youth in her heart and soul, and a girl whose imagination and intuition supplied the place of experience. Anne had at last discovered a real kindred spirit while into the little lady's lonely, sequestered life of dreams, Anne and Diana came with the wholesome joy and exhilaration of the outer existence, which Miss Lavender, the world forgetting by the world forgot, had long ceased to share. They brought an atmosphere of youth and reality to the little stone house, Charlotta IV always greeted them with her very widest smile, and Charlotta's smiles were fearfully wide, loving them for the sake of her adored mistress as well as for their own. Never had there been such hijinks held in the little stone house as were held there that beautiful, late-lingering autumn when November seemed October all over again, and even December aped the sunshine and hazes of summer. But on this particular day, it seemed as if December had remembered that it was time for winter and had turned suddenly dull and brooding 
with a windless hush predictive of coming snow. Nevertheless, Anne keenly enjoyed her walk through the great grey maze of beechlands, though alone she never felt it lonely. Her imagination peopled her path with many companions, and with these she carried on a gay, pretended conversation that was wittier and more fascinating than conversations are apt to be in real life, where people sometimes fail most lamentably to talk up to the requirements. In a make-believe assembly of choice spirits, everybody says just the thing you want her to say, and so gives you the chance to say just what you want to say. Attended by this invisible company, Anne traversed the woods and arrived at the fir lane just as broad, feathery flakes began to flutter down softly. At the first bend, she came upon Miss Lavender, standing under a big, broad, branching fir. She wore a gown of warm, rich red, and her head and shoulders were wrapped in a silvery-grey silk shawl. "'You look like the queen of the firwood fairies,' called Anne merrily. I thought you would come tonight, Anne, said Miss Lavender, running forward. And I'm doubly glad, for Charlotta the Fourth is away. Her mother is sick, and she had to go home for the night. I should have been very lonely if you hadn't come. Even the dreams and the echoes wouldn't have been enough company. Oh, Anne, how pretty you are, she added suddenly looking up at the tall, slim girl with the soft rose flush of walking on her face. How pretty and how young. So delightful to be seventeen, isn't it? I do envy you, concluded Miss Lavender candidly. But you were only seventeen at heart, smiled Anne. No, I'm old, or rather middle-aged, which is far worse, sighed Miss Lavender. Sometimes I pretend I'm not, but at other times I realize it, and I can't reconcile myself to it as most women seem to. Just as rebellious as I was when I discovered my first grey hair. Now, Anne, don't look as if you were trying to understand. Seventeen can't understand. I'm going to pretend right away that I'm seventeen too, and I can do it now that you are here. You always bring youth in your hand like a gift. We're going to have a jolly evening. Tea first. What do you want for tea? We'll have whatever you like. Do think of something nice and indigestible. There were sounds of riot and mirth in the little stone house that night. What with cooking and feasting and making candy and laughing and pretending, 
It is quite true that Miss Lavender and Dan comported themselves in a fashion entirely unsuited to the dignity of a spinster of 45 and a sedate schoolmarm. Then, when they were tired, they sat down on the rug before the grate in the parlour, lighted only by the soft fireshine and perfumed deliciously by Miss Lavender's open rose jar on the mantel. The wind had risen and was sighing and wailing around the eaves, and the snow was thudding softly against the windows as if a hundred storm spirits were tapping for entrance. I'm so glad you're here, Anne, said Miss Lavender, nibbling at her candy. If you weren't, I should be blue, very blue, almost navy blue. Dreams and make-believes are all very well in the daytime and sunshine, but when dark and storm come, they fail to satisfy. One wants real things then. But you don't know this. Seventeen never knows it. At seventeen, dreams do satisfy, because you think the realities are waiting for you further on. When I was seventeen, Anne, I didn't think forty-five would find me a white-haired little old maid with nothing but dreams to fill my life. But you aren't an old maid said Anne, smiling into Miss Lavender's wistful, wood-brown eyes. Old maids are born. They don't become. Some are born old maids. Some achieve old maidenhood. And some have old maidenhood thrust upon them, parodied Miss Lavender whimsically. You are one of those who have achieved it then, laughed Anne, and you have done it so beautifully that if every old maid were like you, then they would come into the fashion, I think. I always like to do things as well as possible, said Miss Lavender meditatively, and since an old maid I had to be, I was determined to be a very nice one. People say I'm odd, just because I follow my own way of being an old maid and refuse to copy the traditional pattern. Anne, did anyone ever tell you anything about Stephen Irving and me? Yes, said Anne candidly. I've heard that you and he were engaged once. So we were. Twenty-five years ago, a lifetime ago, and we were to have been married the next spring. I had my wedding dress made, although nobody but Mother and Stephen ever knew that. We'd been engaged in a way, almost all our lives, you might say. When Stephen was a little boy, his mother would bring him here when she came to see my mother. And the second time he ever came, he was nine, and I was six. He told me out in the garden 
that he had pretty well made up his mind to marry me when he grew up. I remember that I said, thank you, and when he was gone I told my mother very gravely that there was a great weight off my mind, because I wasn't frightened anymore about having to be an old maid. (laughs) How poor mother loved. And what went wrong? asked Anne breathlessly. We had just a stupid, silly, commonplace quarrel. So commonplace that, if you'll believe me, I don't even remember just how it began. I hardly know who was the more to blame for it. Stephen did really begin it, but I suppose I provoked him by some foolishness of mine. He had a rival or two, you see. I was vain and coquettish and liked to tease him a little. He was a very high-strung, sensitive fellow. Well, we parted in a temper on both sides, but I thought it would all come right, and it would have if Stephen hadn't come back too soon. Anne, my dear, I'm sorry to say, Miss Lavender dropped her voice as if she were about to confess a predilection for murdering people, that I am a dreadfully sulky person. Oh, you needn't smile. It's only too true. I do sulk. And Stephen came back before I had finished sulking. I wouldn't listen to him and I wouldn't forgive him. So he went away for good. He was too proud to come again, and then I sulked because he didn't come. I might have sent for him, perhaps, but I couldn't humble myself to do that. I was just as proud as he was. Pride and sulkiness make a very bad combination, Anne never care for anybody else. I didn't want to. I knew I would rather be an old maid for a thousand years than marry anybody who wasn't Stephen Irving. Well, it all seems like a dream now, of course. How sympathetic you look, Anne. As sympathetic as only seventeen can look. But don't overdo it. I'm really a very happy, contented little person in spite of my broken heart. My heart did break, if ever a heart did, when I realised that Stephen Irving was not coming back. But Anne, a broken heart in real life isn't half as dreadful as it is in books. It's a good deal like a bad tooth, though you won't think that a very romantic smile takes spells of aching and gives you a sleepless night now and then, but between times lets you enjoy life, and dreams, and echoes, and peanut candy as if there were nothing the matter with it. Now you're looking disappointed. You don't think I'm half as interesting a person as you did five minutes ago when you believed I was always the prey of a tragic memory bravely hidden beneath external smiles. That's the worst 
or the best of real life, Anne. It won't let you be miserable. It keeps on trying to make you comfortable and succeeding, even when you're determined to be unhappy and romantic. Isn't this candy scrumptious? I've eaten far more than is good for me already, but I'm going to keep going recklessly on. After a little silence, Miss Lavender said abruptly, it gave me a shock to hear about Stephen's son that first day you were here, Anne. I'd never been able to mention him to you since, but I've wanted to know all about him. What sort of a boy is he? He's the sweetest, dearest child I ever knew, Miss Lavender. And he pretends things too, just as you and I do. I'd like to see him, said Miss Lavender softly, as if talking to herself. I wonder if he looks anything like the little dream boy who lives here with me. My little dream boy. If you would like to see Paul... I'll bring him through with me sometime, said Anne. I would like it, but not too soon. I want to get used to the thought. There might be more pain than pleasure in it if he looks too much like Stephen, or if he didn't look enough like him. In a month's time, you may bring him. Accordingly, a month later, Anne and Paul walked through the woods to the stone house and met Miss Lavender in the lane. She had not been expecting them just then and she turned very pale. So this is Stephen's boy, she said in a low tone, taking Paul's hand and looking at him as he stood, beautiful and boyish, in his smart little fur coat and cap. He is very like his father. Everybody says I'm a chip off the old block, remarked Paul, quite at his ease. Anne, who had been watching the little scene, drew a relieved breath. She saw that Miss Lavender and Paul had taken to each other, and that there would be no constraint or stiffness. Miss Lavender was a very sensible person, in spite of her dreams and romance. And after that first little betrayal, she tucked her feelings out of sight and entertained Paul as brightly and naturally as if he were anybody's son who had come to see her. They all had a jolly afternoon together, and such a feast of fat things by way of supper as would have made old Mrs. Irving hold up her hands in horror, believing that Paul's digestion would be ruined forever. Come again, laddie, said Miss Lavender, shaking hands with him at parting. You may kiss me if you like, said Paul gravely. Miss Lavender stooped and kissed him. How did you know I wanted to? She whispered. Because you looked at me just as my little mother used to when she wanted to kiss me. As a rule, I don't like to be kissed. Boys don't, you know, 
but I think I'd rather like to have you kiss me. And of course I'll come and see you again. I think I'd like to have you for a particular friend of mine, if you don't object. I... I don't think I shall object, said Miss Lavender. She turned and went in very quickly, but a moment later she was waving a gay and smiling goodbye to them from the window. I like Miss Lavender, announced Paul as they walked through the beech woods. I like the way she looked at me, and I like her stone house, and I like Charlotte the Fourth. I wish Grandma Irving had a Charlotte the Fourth instead of Mary Joe. I feel sure Charlotte the Fourth wouldn't think I was wrong in my upper story when I told her what I think about things. Wasn't that a splendid tea we had, teacher? Grandma says a boy shouldn't be thinking about what he gets to eat. He can't help it sometimes when he's real hungry. You know, teacher, I don't think Miss Lavender would make a boy eat porridge for breakfast if he didn't like it. She'd get things for him he did like. But of course, Paul was nothing if not fair-minded. That mightn't be very good for him. It's very nice for a change, though, teacher, you know? Chapter 24 A Prophet in His Own Country One May Day, Avonlea folks were mildly excited over some Avonlea notes signed Observer which appeared in the Charlottetown Daily Enterprise. Gossip ascribed the authorship thereof to Charlie Sloan, partly because the said Charlie had indulged in similar literary flights in times past, and partly because one of the notes seemed to embody a sneer at Gilbert Blythe. Avonlea Juvenile Society persisted in regarding Gilbert Blythe and Charlie Sloane as rivals in the good graces of a certain damsel with grey eyes and an imagination. Gossip, as usual, was wrong. Gilbert Blythe, aided and abetted by Anne, had written the notes, putting in the one about himself as a blind. Only two of the notes have any bearing on this history. Rumour has it that there will be a wedding in our village ere the daisies are in bloom. A new and highly respected citizen will lead to the hymnal altar one of our most popular ladies. Uncle Abe, our well-known weather prophet, predicts a violent storm of thunder and lightning for the evening of the 23rd of May, beginning at 7 o'clock sharp. The area of the storm will extend over the greater part of the province. People travelling that evening will do well to take umbrellas and mackintoshes with them. Uncle Abe really has predicted a storm for some time this spring, said Gilbert. But do you suppose Mr. Harrison really does go to see Isabella Andrews? No, 
said Anne, laughing. I'm sure he only goes to play checkers with Mr. Harrison Andrews, but Mrs. Lynn said she knows Isabel Andrews must be going to get married. She's in such good spirits this spring. Poor old Uncle Abe felt rather indignant over the notes. He suspected that Observer was making fun of him. He angrily denied having assigned any particular date for his storm, but nobody believed him. Life in Avonlea continued on the smooth and even tenor of its way. The planting was put in. The improvers celebrated an Arbor Day. Each improver set out, or caused to be set out, five ornamental trees. As the society now numbered 40 members, this meant a total of 200 young trees. Early oats greened over the red fields. Apple orchards flung great blossoming arms about the farmhouses, and the Snow Queen adorned itself as a bride for her husband. Anne liked to sleep with her window open and let the cherry fragrance blow over her face all night. She thought it very poetical. Marilla thought she was risking her life. Thanksgiving should be celebrated in the spring, said Anne one evening to Marilla as they sat on the front doorsteps and listened to the silver-sweet chorus of the frogs. I think it would be ever so much better than having it in November, when everything is dead or asleep. Then you have to remember to be thankful. But in May, one simply can't help being thankful. But they are alive, if for nothing else. I feel exactly as Eve must have felt in the Garden of Eden before trouble began. Is that grass in the hollow green or golden? Seems to me, Marilla, that a pearl of a day like this, when the blossoms are out and the winds don't know where to blow from next for sheer crazy delight, must be pretty near as good as heaven. Marilla looked scandalized and glanced apprehensively around to make sure the twins were not within earshot. They came around the corner of the house just then. Ain't that an awful nice-smelling evening? Asked Davy, sniffing delightedly as he swung a hoe in his grimy hands. He had been working in his garden. That spring, Marilla, by way of turning Davy's passion for reveling in mud and clay into useful channels, had given him and Dora a small plot of ground for a garden. Both had eagerly gone to work in a characteristic fashion. Dora planted, weeded, and watered, carefully, systematically, and dispassionately. As a result, her plot was already green with prim, orderly little rows of vegetables and annuals. Davy, however, 
worked with more zeal than discretion. He dug and hoed and raked and watered and transplanted so energetically that his seeds had no chance for their lives. How is your garden coming on, Davy boy? asked Anne. Oh, kind of slow, said Davy with a sigh. I don't know why things don't grow better. Milty Balter said I must have planted them in the dark of the moon, and that's the whole trouble. He says you must never sow seeds, or kill pork, or cut your hair, or do any important thing in the wrong time of the moon. Is that true, Anne? I want to know. Maybe if you didn't pull your plants up by the roots every other day just to see how they're getting on at the other end, they'd do better, said Marilla sarcastically. I only pulled six of them up, protested Davy. I wanted to see if there was grubs at the roots. Milty Balter said if it wasn't the moon's fault, it must be grubs. But I only found one grub. It was a great big juicy, curly grub. I put him on a stone and got another stone and smashed him flat. He made a jolly squish, I tell you. I was sorry there wasn't more of them. Dora's garden was planted same as mine and things are growing all right. Can't be the moon. Davy concluded in a reflective tone. Marilla, look at that apple tree said Anne. Why, the thing is human. It's reaching out long arms to pick its own pink skirts daintily up and provoke us to admiration. Those yellow duchess trees always bear well, said Marilla complacently. That tree will be loaded this year. I'm real glad. They're great for pies. But neither Marilla nor Anne nor anybody else was fated to make pies out of yellow duchess apples that year. The 23rd of May came, an unseasonably warm day, as none realized more keenly than Anne and her little beehive of pupils, sweltering over fractions and syntax in the Avonlea schoolroom. A hot breeze blew all the forenoon, but afternoon hour it died away into a heavy stillness. At half past three, Anne heard a low rumble of thunder. She promptly dismissed school at once so that the children might get home before the storm came. As they went out to the playground, Anne perceived a certain shadow and gloom over the world, in spite of the fact that the sun was still shining brightly. Annetta Bell caught her hand nervously. Oh, teacher, look at that awful cloud. Anne looked and gave an exclamation of dismay. In the northwest, a mass of cloud such as she had never in all her life beheld before, was rapidly rolling up. It was dead black, 
save where it curled and fringed at the edges and showed a ghastly, livid white. There was something about it indescribably menacing as it gloomed up in the clear blue sky. Now and again, a bolt of lightning shot across it, followed by a savage growl. It hung so low that it almost seemed to be touching the tops of the wooded hills. Mr. Harmon Andrews came clattering up the hill in his truck wagon, urging his team of greys to their utmost speed. He pulled them to a halt opposite the school. Guess Uncle Abe's hit it for once in his life, Anne, he shouted. His storm's coming a little ahead of time. Did you ever see the like of that cloud? Here, all you young ones that are going my way pile in, and those that ain't, scoot for the post office if you've more than a quarter of a mile to go, and stay there till the shower's over. Anne caught Davy and Dora by the hands and flew down the hill, along the birch path and past Violet Vale and Willowmere as fast as the twins' fat legs could go. They reached Green Gables not a moment too soon and were joined at the door by Marilla, who had been hustling her ducks and chickens under shelter. As they dashed into the kitchen, the light seemed to vanish as if blown out by some mighty breath the awful cloud rolled over the sun and a darkness as of late twilight fell across the world. At the same moment, with a crash of thunder and a blinding glare of lightning, the hail swooped down and blotted the landscape out in one white fury. Through all the clamor of the storm came the thud of torn branches striking the house and the sharp crack of breaking glass. In three minutes, every pane in the west and north windows was broken and the hail poured in through the apertures, covering the floor with stones, the smallest of which was as big as a hen's egg For three quarters of an hour, the storm raged unabated, and no one who underwent it ever forgot it. Marilla, for once in her life, shaken out of her composure by sheer terror, knelt by her rocking chair in a corner of the kitchen, gasping and sobbing between the deafening thunder peals. Anne, white as paper, had dragged the sofa away from the window and sat on it with a twin on either side. Davy, at the first crash, had howled, Anne, Anne, is it the judgment day? Anne, Anne, I never meant to be naughty. And then had buried his face in Anne's lap and kept it there, his little body quivering. Dora, somewhat pale but quite composed, 
sat with her hand clasped in Anne's, quiet and motionless. It is doubtful if an earthquake would have disturbed Dora. Then, almost as suddenly as it began, the storm ceased. The hail stopped. The thunder rolled and muttered away to the eastward, and the sun burst out, merry and radiant, over a world so changed that it seemed an absurd thing to think that a scant three-quarters of an hour could have effected such a transformation. Marilla rose from her knees, weak and trembling, and dropped on her rocker. Her face was haggard, and she looked ten years older. Have we all come out of that alive? She asked solemnly. You bet we have, piped Davy cheerfully, quite his own man again. I wasn't a bit scared either, only just at the first. It come on a fellow so sudden. I made up my mind as quick as a wink that I wouldn't fight Teddy Sloan Monday as I'd promised. But now maybe I will. Say, Dora, was you scared? Yes, was a little scared, said Dora primly. But I held tight to Anne's hand and said my prayers over and over again. Well, I'd have said my prayers too if I'd have thought of it, said Davy. But, he added triumphantly, you see, I came through just as safe as you for all I didn't say him. Anne got Marilla a glass full of her potent current wine. How potent it was, Anne, in her earlier days, had all too good reason to know. And then they went to the door to look out on the strange scene. Far and wide was a white carpet, knee-deep of hailstones. Drifts of them were heaped up under the eaves and on the steps, when three or four days later those hailstones melted, the havoc they had wrought was plainly seen. For every green, growing thing in the field or garden was cut off. Not only was every blossom stripped from the apple trees, but great boughs and branches were wrenched away, and out of the two hundred trees, set out by the improvers, by far the greater number were snapped off or torn to shreds. Can it possibly be the same world it was an hour ago? asked Anne, dazedly. Must have taken longer than that to play such havoc. The like of this has never been known in Prince Edward Island, said Marilla. Never. I remember when I was a little girl there was a bad storm, but it was nothing to this. We'll hear of terrible destruction, you may be sure. I do hope none of the children were caught out in it, murmured Anne anxiously. As it was discovered later, none of the children had been, since all those who had any distance to go had taken Mr. Andrew's excellent advice 
and sought refuge at the post office. Here comes John Henry Carter, said Marilla. John Henry came wading through the hailstones with a rather scared grin. Oh, ain't this awful, Miss Cuthbert? Mr. Harrison sent me over to see if you'd come out all right. We're none of us killed, said Marilla grimly. None of the buildings were struck. Hope you got off equally well. Yes, ma'am. Not quite so well, ma'am. We were struck. The lightning knocked over the kitchen chimney and come down on the flue and knocked over Ginger's cage, tore a hole in the floor and went into the cellar. Yes, ma'am. Was Ginger hurt? Queried Anne. Yes, ma'am. He was hurt pretty bad. He was killed. Later on, Anne went over to comfort Mr. Harrison. She found him sitting by the table, stroking Ginger's dead body with a trembling hand. Poor Ginger won't call your names anymore, Anne, he said mournfully. Anne could never have imagined herself crying on Ginger's account, but the tears came into her eyes. It was all the company I had, Anne. Now he's dead. Well, well. I'm an old fool to care so much. I'll let on I don't care. You know, you're going to say something sympathetic as soon as I stop talking, but don't. If he did, I'd cry like a baby. Hasn't this been a terrible storm? Guess folks won't laugh at Uncle Abe's predictions again. Seems as if all the storms that he's been prophesying all his life that never happened came all at once. Beats all how he struck the very day, though, don't it? Looking at the mess we have here. I must hustle round and get some boards to patch up that hole in the floor. Avonlea folks did nothing the next day but visit each other and compare damages. The roads were impassable for wheels by reason of the hailstone, so they walked or rode on horseback. The mail came late with ill tidings from all over the province. Houses had been struck, people killed and injured. The whole telephone and telegraph system had been disorganized, and any number of young stock exposed in the fields had perished. Uncle Abe waded out to the blacksmith's forge early in the morning and spent the whole day there. It was Uncle Abe's hour of triumph, and he enjoyed it to the full. It would be doing Uncle Abe an injustice to say that he was glad the storm had happened. But since it had to be, he was very glad he had predicted it. To the very day, too. Uncle Abe forgot that he had ever denied setting the day. As for the trifling discrepancy in the hour, that was nothing. Gilbert arrived at Green Gables in the evening and found Marilla and Anne busily engaged in nailing strips of oilcloth over the broken windows. Goodness only knows when we'll get glass for them, said Marilla. Mr. Barry went over to Carmody this afternoon, but not a 
but not a pain could he get for love nor money. Lawson and Blair were cleaned out by the Carmody people by ten o'clock. Was the storm bad at White Sands, Gilbert? I should say so. I was caught in the school with all the children. I thought some of them would go mad with fright. Three of them fainted, and two girls took hysterics, and Tommy Blewett did nothing but shriek at the top of his voice the whole time. I only squealed once, said Davy proudly. My garden was all smashed flat, he continued mournfully. But so was Dora's, he added in a tone which indicated that there was yet balm in Gilead. Anne came running down from the west gable. Oh, Gilbert, have you heard the news? Mr. Levi Bolter's old house was struck and burned to the ground. Seems to me that I'm dreadfully wicked to feel glad over that, and so much damage has been done. Mr. Bolter says he believes the AVIS magicked up that storm on purpose. Well, one thing is certain said Gilbert, laughing. Observer has made Uncle Abe's reputation as a weather prophet. Uncle Abe's storm will go down in local history. It's a most extraordinary coincidence that it should have come on the day we selected. I actually have half a guilty feeling, as if I really magicked it up. We may as well rejoice over the old house being removed. There's not much to rejoice over where our young trees are concerned. Not ten of them have escaped. Ah well, just have to plant them over again next spring, said Anne philosophically. That is one good thing about this world. There are always sure to be more springs. 